Hey, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we'll be in verse 10 uh, this morning. We're continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, just to catch us up to where we are and to keep us in uh, remembrance of the things that we have been taught so far, do, do remember some of the things that Christ has taught us to not be like. And remember the first person that he said that you, you don't want to be like is a hypocrite. And remember that what defines a hypocrite is that the hypocrite is concerned with drawing attention to themselves and, and actually are trying to be something that they actually are not. They're not concerned with actually being the thing that they're praying for. They're only concerned with the external audience of man thinking they're that thing. Now think about that for a second. We all do it, don't we? We all create some sort of external persona that we want other people to believe, that we want other people to think that we are something that we are not. There are things that we just don't want others to know about us. And yet what's interesting is that God knows every fiber of your being, and yet we're not concerned with Him knowing all. We're more worried about what some other person who has no control over our lives whatsoever, ultimately, knowing something bad about us or something negligible about us or knowing uh, some failing that we've had and we think that there is a, a, a reason to try to protect ourselves from someone who can't do anything about it but the one who can destroy body and soul. We couldn't care less what he thinks. So Christ says, don't pray like that guy. Instead, pray as if you were in a prayer closet and no one else was around and you couldn't care less what anybody else thinks and your only audience is God himself. Then he said, don't pray like the Gentiles. And remember, the Gentiles, they thought that, that prayer was a technique, which many of you and I have thought or may even be thinking right now. But is prayer a technique that you got to do a certain way in order for God to listen? Is it? You better hope not. Because there's a lot of books written, and I can guarantee you we have not read them all, and I can guarantee you that they're not all right. And so it's not about technique, is it? What's it about? It's about relationship. And that's what Christ is reminding us, that it is in relationship with God that we have this glorious freedom to come before him and speak very, very openly and, and, and very candidly sometimes. Remember our journey through the book of Habakkuk. I mean, there's some part of you that should have been a little shocked at how Habakkuk talked to God. Because remember what he said to him. In the very beginning, he said, look, there's all these things going on. You appear to be blind. You ever said that to God before? I know you've thought it, and therefore you have said it to him, but have you had the courage to go to him and say it in such a way that Habakkuk did, ultimately coming round to reverence, remember? Habakkuk didn't just leave it there. He continued to say, this is what I know about you, Lord, and this is what I see going on in the world, and there's a gap here that I cannot traverse but I'm going to stand my watch and trust you to answer. If you've read the book of Job, if you've read any of the other prophets, in fact, just this past week, we've been going through Tim Keller's book on prayer. <laughs> and one of the passages that we looked at in terms of struggling with God was Jeremiah chapter 15. And the language in Jeremiah chapter 15 is very interesting. 
as Jeremiah goes straight to the Lord and say, cursed be the woman who gave birth to me. You ever said that? Cursed be the woman who gave birth to me because I should not exist. And he goes on to say, I have done everything you have asked me to do. Everything right. Are you a babbling brook leading me astray? You ever been that honest with the Lord before? Now, if you know, it ends in Jeremiah 15, right? Because God kills him on the spot. No, there's 52 chapters in Jeremiah. The story goes on because God says to Jeremiah, repent and I'll restore you. I am with you. I will protect you and no one can touch you. That's relationship. God said, I will be with you when you walk through the fire from Isaiah. So again and again and again, we see all throughout Scripture the actual truths of the Lord's prayer being played out in the lives of God's people if we just had the eyes to see. And we just had the courage to actually live it out so that we could finally understand that God is our Father. Remember how he contrasts the Gentiles who use heaps and heaps of words to try to sway God as if it were some sort of technique. He says, remember the Lord your God your Father knows what you need before you can speak it and is already moving to change it. And that's because He loves us and that's relationship. And then He goes on to say, so based on all of that, based on God alone is your audience and God alone is the one you relate to, God is the one who loves you and can change things, pray then with all that being true like this. Our Father. And remember, one of the things that we noted is that all the pronouns related to God's people are plural. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation or individually. I know some of you would like that to be true because it's messy out here. It's messy in our families. It's messy with our friends, much less our enemies, much less our neighbors that we don't yet know much less the people that we work with a cubicle away that you just are, can't stand because they play Celine Dion nonstop. But I digress. It is hard. And trust me, as the one who is constantly trying to push you toward this communal understanding, I am covered in scars. And trust me, there are days where I say to the Lord, I don't know if I can say it to them because I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I want to do it, not even one more day. Today is not one of those days, by the way. And so understand that, and we were talking about this in staff, uh, in our staff meeting just this past Tuesday, with the things that are going on in our families, that the closest proximity to us, our nearest neighbors, we were saying, how can we say to the rest of the church that they need to be communal when we are struggling so much to even love the ones that are closest to us? Now we know why you push back so hard. And so understand that we don't take lightly, and I don't just throw out those things about community lightly, because obviously Christ didn't. And that teaches us that we're in this together as a family. And that should be more encouraging to us than discouraging. And then he said, our Father, which indicates that the Lord is near and that he is not some distant deity in the back of the universe. He's not just king. He's not just Lord. He is not just some distant being who forgot about us. 
He's Father. And the Father loves to give good gifts to His children, the ones they truly need, not the ones they want in their impetuousness and foolishness. And so we can't even hardly get into the prayer before it is pregnant and exploding with meaning. And when we say our Father, we're saying, just as Bill said, we are adopted. The assurance of adoption comes into view. And remember, we haven't even asked for anything yet. And he says, our Father in heaven, which means he is near, but he is other than. And if he weren't other than, he couldn't save us. If he weren't holy and totally unlike us, then there's no way he could save us because I don't know about you. But I don't have enough gumption to try to save any of you, much less myself some days. So praise God that he is so other than us, though he be near, that he can save us. And then the first petition is, give us some stuff. No, it's hallowed be your name. Christ is saying, before you can even get to anything about you, you need to first reconcile some things that you should desire and care about more than anything about God. And we talked about how that coincides with that first question from the Shorter Catechism, that our purpose is to glorify the Lord our God. For God's name to be hallowed means for it to be made known and it to be holy and it to be glorious. And so here Christ is saying, before we get to anything about us, Lord, let's talk about you Glory and honor be unto you. Remember the psalm we read last week, Psalm 115, from the call to worship, not to us, but to you, Lord, be the glory. And when the Lord is glorified, guess what that, hap- what that does for us? It gives us our greatest joy and opportunity to flourish and thrive. Where the Lord is not glorious, where he is not made known, we don't thrive. Think just for a moment, even the book, The Lord of the Flies. What happens when they finally at long last have freedom? Well, it goes bad for a guy named Piggy. And that book is not just fiction, is it? It's a true story in the sense that that is us in spades, isn't it? That when we are given unfettered freedom, we do not use it for glory and honor and freedom. Look at and this is not a statement against the people, but think about Baltimore. Think about, think about when Vancouver lost in the Stanley Cup Finals. White Canadians went bananas and burned the city. They had freedom because they were in mass and no one could stop them. They didn't solve homelessness. They didn't build houses. They didn't use all of their energy and ingenuity to do anything good. No, they were angry because their favorite hockey team lost, and they burned the city. So we see example after example after example that when we have full freedom without God's glory, it goes bad. And so our first petition was that the Lord's name would be hallowed, and now we come to the second and the third. They really are all one package deal because God's name cannot be hallowed if his kingdom doesn't come and if his will be not done. And in fact, I I would argue, along with R.T. France and a couple of other commentators, that on earth as it is in heaven refers to all three. Really, because, I mean, why would you want God's name hallowed and his kingdom to come, but nah, let's not have that on earth. Let's just do your will be done on earth. For his will to be done, the other two have to be true. So it really is is a capstone condition. So, as we approach this text this morning, let me give you the key truth that we need to walk away with. Our greatest desire 
should be for God's kingdom to come in glory and his redemptive will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, which should shape how we live right now. You cannot pray your kingdom come, your will be done, and not live in such a way that evidences that you are in legion with those things. All throughout the Old Testament, God's kingdom is summed up in three things. Truth, righteousness, and justice. The prophets say it over and over and over and over again. And if we say your kingdom come, then we must be ambassadors of truth, righteousness, and justice. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, who's justice and which rationality? Who's truth? Who's righteousness? God's. Which means you have to be a people of the book to understand what each of those phrases means in the context of the glory of God, not in the context of man. So, for us to be able to desire these things, for us to be able to live them out, we must be a people of the word who are seeking to understand what all of this means. These are big concepts, kingdom and will. We've talked about them here many times before. I will not be able to exhaustively preach on them this morning. We're just going to hit some of the high notes of it. So, as we turn to the text, um, let me ask you a question and then give you a quote Um, The question is, what is your greatest desire in the Christian life? And let me also say, I bet you haven't thought about it. That's not a condemnation. I hadn't thought about it really either. Most of us are so caught up in the, the Ecclesiastes nature of the rising and falling of the sun and the daily activities that we're caught in the tyranny of the urgent, right? And so we don't really pause and say, wait, 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 let's, let's hit, the, hit the pause button for a second. That, by the way, is called the Sabbath. If you practiced it, it it's really helpful in that regard. And it's, it's a time where we step back and go, okay, I know about the flow of my life, but what is my greatest desire and how is how I'm living consistent with that reality? Because to just pay lip service, and I can't tell you how many, I am almost incredibly tired of the term missional. Um, because I, and, I, and listen, I was, I was Acts 29 when it wasn't even cool to be Acts 29 back in the day. Um, I was Acts 29 when it wasn't cool again to be Acts 29 when the kingdom fell. Um, and and so, so listen to me. I love the term. I love the ideas behind the term. But we have so abused it and just talked about it as this, this meta idea that it has never come down to earth. It's only existed in the heavenly realm of discussion. And we have narrowly defined it and and somehow taken vocation out of it and taken being a stay-at-home mom out of it and taken all these things out of it that it is almost meaningless. And so if, if we are going to actually say we desire something, then our lives must be consistent in that and mostly consistent with the missio dei, the missional calling of the Lord our God, which we'll see in a second. So what is your greatest desire? That may take some time for you to think about. What is your greatest desire in the Christian life? And even more important, are your actions consistent with what you say you desire? Did I say your actions are perfect with what you desire? Is that what I said? Not at all. In fact, if you know me, I don't believe that at all. 
I don't think you believe that at all. It's a struggle, isn't it, between the now and the not yet. It's a great tension, and we're assailed on many sides, even by good ideas. But listen to what Karl Barth says, and for those of you who are concerned that I'm quoting Karl Barth, I know his flaws, I get it, but this is a great quote. To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Let me read that again. To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. What's Carl saying? He's saying that, first and foremost, we're confessing that we cannot fix it in and of ourselves. Secondly, he's also confessing that there's only one who can, and he's confessing that things aren't right, and he's confessing that prayer has a purpose, which is to see things made right. Isn't that the Lord's Prayer? So as we step into this petition, let's talk about your kingdom come. We have to remember that um, when it says your, it doesn't mean our, and that doesn't mean we get to shape it. It doesn't get to be made in our image. It must be in God's image. It must be in the way in which it is talked about in Scripture. And I will say, there's no possible way for you to understand the concept kingdom if you have not a knowledge of the Old Testament. Kingdom is explained in spades in the Old Testament, and the New Covenant doesn't change what it meant. The New Covenant kingdom that Christ inaugurates is that kingdom that was spoken of. It's not that this kingdom lacks truth and righteousness and justice. No, even more so now. It's actually possible now. Whereas in the old concepts, as you saw again and again and again, how did royal temple theology work out for kingdom? They love the poor, right? How many times did they practice jubilee, Jonathan? Zero. Great concept, never saw the light of day. Because royal temple theology squashed it. And actually did the opposite, which is why, remember, Habakkuk cried out, are you blind, Lord? Look at what your people are doing. Jeremiah, the same way. Zechariah, the same way. Zephaniah, the same way. Amos, the same way. Micah, the same way. Malachi, the same way. Obadiah, the same way. All of them. We're speaking to how things were coming apart because man could not bring into inauguration the kingdom of God. It was going to take a different king for a different kingdom. And so when we say your kingdom come, we're clearly submitting ourselves to God's concept of what that is. And we are suggesting that we are submitting ourselves to be ambassadors of that same kingdom. This means that it shapes our ethics. Let me illustrate. If the hallmarks of the kingdom are truth and righteousness and justice, how does this affect how you do your job? How does this, how does this change how you do business? For those of you who are small business owners... Is it still okay for you to manipulate and cut corners to make sure the government doesn't know about some of that money you got that you don't want taxed? Is that, is that justice? Sticking it to the man. Kingdom come, what? No, it is not. Is it, is it 
turning a blind eye when your neighbor, though different looking than you, is suffering. Is that justice, righteousness, and truth? Is it not caring about what the Christians are going through in Syria because that's just not our problem here? Unless you lived in Charleston, South Carolina and went to a prayer meeting at Emmanuel AME Church one night and a terrorist walked in with a handgun and killed them. It is our problem here. It is our, it is our problem anytime the kingdom is not represented among the people of God. We have to care about this in communal fashion. We have to be those who are putting our hands to the plow to see things change. Now, one of the things we've talked about in staff meeting is, and I know you're thinking it, how overwhelming the statement I just made truly is. Linda Maffitt will be going back to Haiti in October. If all we did was concentrate our entire church effort on Haiti, how long do you think it would take for us to make the kingdom come there? We're not going to make it come, by the way, and we couldn't fix it either. How about the, we've got missionaries we support in Thailand. If you know anything about Thailand, oh my, we could talk politics for days. They just had a thruple get married there. They're way ahead of us on this whole marriage curve, by the way, because anything goes. So I understand that my statement is utterly overwhelming, but let me help bring it back into perspective. You're not, each of us is not called to fix it all. You're not Jesus, and you're not the Holy Spirit. So stop being arrogant and thinking that it's overwhelming because there's any slight possibility that you could if you put your mind and effort to it. No, you can't. All you can put your mind and effort to is what the Lord grants you. It could be, it could be your family. It could be your job. It could be the... The, the interaction that your kids have with other kids. It could be your neighborhood. It could be within the context of the church. Yes, it could be missions work somewhere. It could be any and all of those things, but we got to remember the communal nature of it. You individually are not called to fix it all, so you can pray this and it not be overwhelming because you know that the Lord has 7,000 more just like you and many more to engage these issues. He's not slack in his promises. So it is not on us to make come to pass. And this kingdom concept means that we are willing to live in the tension between the now and the not yet. Because we know that when Christ came first, what changed? Right? Babies quit dying, right? No. No. Um, Trafficking stopped when Jesus came the first time, right? No. War ceased. And even rumors of war ceased when he came, right? No. So what changed when the kingdom was inaugurated? When he came? Redemption. The possibility that we could be part of the unfolding kingdom that was being inaugurated such that we could say with Paul from Romans 8 that the current suffering that we endure pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. And it's so much so that all of creation stands on tiptoe, neck outstretched, waiting, groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed in glory. Amen?
And so, though it has been inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated, and that's the promise of the return. So what are we to do between the now and the not yet? Just live in the tension? Move in the tension? We're to be ambassadors, representative and reflective of God's glory. Now, I had a question from last week's sermon, and I am appreciative of those of you who ask questions, because that means you're paying attention at some level. And this person was concerned that I, I had suggested that we could improve or diminish God's glory. All right, so let me, let me qualify. God's glory is a fixed thing. We're not going to make it more or less because if we could make God's glory more or less, we could make him more or less, correct? So that's not, not it at all. However, how much of that fixed glory you reflect as an ambassador grows and diminishes, right? I mean, think about when a Christian leader falls, who gets charged with the bill? Jesus does by the people. And so it's, it's an issue of, of us being reflective ambassadors, revealing God's glory through our kingdom ethics. Okay? You may still have more questions about that. By all means, please ask. I do appreciate them. Um, as we move on from your kingdom come, listen to what Daryl L. Gruder says in the book, The Missional Church. He says, as we pray your kingdom come, we affirm that Jesus Christ has triumphed over the powers of sin and death, but we also declare that the joy and the freedom of life within the reign of God are not yet a full reality. Remember, all the barriers have yet to be removed, but they will one day, and we look forward to that day. So let me ask you, what, what aspects of God's kingdom are you currently participating in? Let me ask this a different way. How are you evidencing truth, righteousness, and justice where you currently work, live, and play? And that, that's not it. You can't just rattle that off. That's something you're really going to have to think about and consider. What are some ways in, in which you may be doing the contra to these things, either passively or actively? And as the Spirit is kind to show you those things, repent and grow and display. The second, or the third petition, after your kingdom come, he says, your will be done. And we've got to remember again that the, the your term is God's will, not ours. We're submitting our will to his. Now, did Christ do this anywhere? Did Christ ever have to live the truth of this did he have any idea what he was going to have to go through to answer or, or use this prayer? Remember, as he was in Gethsemane, we looked at this over the Easter sermon series, and he was so distraught that even blood seemed to be coming from his pores, and he prayed, may this cup pass from me, a cup that you and I have not had to drink and will never drink as sons and daughters, so we will never understand the depth of this prayer. But then he said these words, which are almost unimaginable, but not my will, your will be done. And so when we pray your will be done, we are submitting our wants, desires, and expectations to the will of God. Now this is one of the hardest things for us to do as middle and upper middle class Americans. It is almost inconceivable that we would submit our will or that our will would not be somehow, somehow God's will as well. Isn't it God's will that I have these things and that my child have these things and that we do these things that are all about us, individuals, and not kingdom? 
But when we pray this, it's a very dangerous prayer because he will test it. At some point, he's gonna, it'll come around. He's going to say, do you believe that now? But what we've got to understand is what will is he referring to? What he's referring to is the redemptive will of God. Remember, why did he send Jesus to set up a geopolitical reign, right? Well, not at the first inauguration. In consummation, it will. And it'll be his because he will be the king. And he reigns now, by the way. But what he sent him to do was redeem and reconcile and retrieve that which was lost. So whenever we kind of struggle, I just don't know what God's will is. Yes, you do. His will is that you would be his child and that your neighbors would be his child and that the family would get larger, which is why he tarries. So God's will is utterly redemptive and reconciliatory and beautiful. And again, when we pray this, we are saying we submit as ambassadors of reconciliation. That our greatest desire is to live the ethics of your kingdom and to see people redeemed and changed. This is the true missional prayer, by the way. And it is not that we get to stand quartered safe outside of the cost of all of that. But listen to what J.C. Ryle um, says. He says, our truest happiness is perfect submission to God's will. And it is the highest charity to pray that all mankind may know it, obey it, and submit to it. See, what we're being told currently in culture is no, it is the highest crime for you to pray such a thing. It is the highest crime for you to desire that we would submit to some invisible God because we have fashioned this in our own image. Woe be unto you for you to suggest even slightly that I should do this. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a current lawsuit against Thomas Nelson Publishers and another publisher as well because of the scripture that it talks about homosexuality. It's a $70 million lawsuit. I don't know if they're going to win or not, but the shots are being fired across the bow. And unfortunately, I suspect that the shots are being fired with such vehemence in part because of the way the church failed to live its kingdom ethic over the years but I won't get into all that right now. So we have to ask, what is God's will? We have to, and then that's, again, we have to ask it so that we remind ourselves that it is redemptive, that it is reconciliatory. That is what he desires. That's what he wants us to be participating in. That is what he wants us to pray for. That is what he wants us to be about. And then how does it currently differ in heaven than on earth? What can we expect? Well, you can expect to suffer. You can expect to be treated as your master, your Lord, Jesus Christ, was treated. You can expect for it to hurt. You can expect to be rejected. You can expect to be cast out. You can expect to be sued. You can expect to lose your job. You can expect to lose a tremendous amount. And yet, when one receives, what will heaven do? They will throw this incredible party like nothing we have ever seen or can comprehend. All of heaven will break out in God's glory when one, no matter what you have lost, comes. Now, you will not see me at the front of the line on this, this suffering. I, like you, I struggle with this. I don't like being rejected. 
I don't like being not liked. I know it's strange. I know some of you don't believe that. I really don't. And I know that, I know that it's hard to suggest that you could, you could put yourself in a position to lose your job. But remember what you're saying when you say, I can't afford to lose this job. You're saying God cannot provide. To stand for God's glory, to actually seek the hallowing of his name and the kingdom coming and his will being done that he cannot take care of you, his ambassador. That's what you're saying. That is bad theology. That is a theology that cannot hold you in the end. Someday it will come round. And so, the last thing from this prayer, from this aspect of the prayer, as we move through the first, second, and third condition, or first, second, and third petition is the condition of all three, which is for Christ to say, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, very quickly, this this, this phrase, it serves as a condition of these things. And what he's saying is, in heaven, remember, in heaven, God is fully known. His glory is on grand display, so much so that the only song that can hardly be sung is, holy, holy, holy. And the angels are so overwhelmed with his glory that all they want to do is obey and enjoy. Truth, righteousness, and justice reign Christ is there. And this, we're saying we'd love to see the earth itself pregnant with all of these things in truth. This also teaches us that we are not going away somewhere. There is not this, we're not, um, I just read this in in Dale Ralph Davies' commentary on, on Joshua. He said, we are not these little blips in the ether They're just going to be floating around and kind of bump into each other. No, it will be tangible. The kingdom is going to be tangible. It will be made new. We will have risen bodies, resurrected, glorious. Now, I know some of you are wondering, will Cameron have more hair? I don't know. I I won't care. That's the beautiful part. And you won't either. And we will be, there'll be a feast and it will be the finest of wines and the richest of meats in ways that will not cause us indigestion or drunkenness or all the foolishness that comes with overindulgence. This kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. And the Lord's presence will fill every rhythm thing. His glory will be reflected from every surface. We won't even need the sun or the stars to shine. Amen? No tears, no hurt, no betrayal, no manipulation. All will be at long last true and righteous and just. R.T. France, New Testament scholar in his commentary on Matthew says, On earth as it is in heaven allows the double application of these clauses which have a fulfillment not only in the worship and harmony of heaven, but also on earth, progressively as the consummation approaches and completely when it comes. This is the part that I love. The prayer's focus is not not on either the present or the future, but on God himself, whose glory must be the disciples' first and deepest concern before they consider their own needs. Which reality do you gravitate toward? Are you so looking forward to heaven? Are you so heavenly minded that you have no earthly good? 
You're just, you just stepped back and said, it ain't even worth trying to mess with. It is not worth trying to fix. I'm just going to get my little family together. I'll do what I can to protect them. I'll do what I can to just, just keep my little postage stamp clean. Forgetting that the fall comes from within, not from without. In addition to coming from without. Or are you so earthly minded that you are of no real heavenly good? You so don't think about the ethics of the kingdom. You're not worried about how you live. You just figure it's cheap grace. God will take care of it, whatever. I'll just kind of cruise through. I'll do my thing. See, we must live in that tension. We, must, we can't lean to one side or the other. We have to live. We must be able to live in the tension between the now and the not yet. But know that it's going to be a struggle. Know that we're in it together. Know that we're, we're there to correct and help each other get back to that tension and be more in the middle than falling off to one side or the other. So as we close out the sermon this morning, let me read this to you, and I've really essentially said this very early on. This is Craig S. Keener, who is a New Testament scholar from the Gospel of Matthew, a socio-rhetorical commentary. He says, those who long for God's will on earth in the future, listen, should live consistently with that longing in the present, working for God's righteousness and seeking his will here. Indeed, only those who bring forth the fruit of repentance, showing themselves ready for the kingdom, would dare genuinely pray for his kingdom to come. See, to pray this is dangerous. So I hope that you never again casually recite the Lord's Prayer. I hope that you would, if you honestly don't mean it, would keep your mouth shut and not just engage in bare Christian activity, that you instead would seek to repent and truly embody the ethics of the kingdom and the desire to see things redeemed, which is God's will. So what do we learn from Matthew 6.10? We learn three things. God's glorious and just kingdom is to be desired over our own. God's redemptive will is to be submitted to and desired for others. And we should seek to live now according to the ethics of the kingdom and redemptive will in the power of the Spirit while longing for completion in the not yet. I know that a lot of what has been said here this morning is, is heavy, and I know that some of you may just want to forget it and move on, but I do pray that you will wrestle with these concepts this Lord's day and beyond. And as you wrestle, listen to me. Email, let's do lunch, let's grab coffee, we have a session of elders. Any of us would long to sit down with you and help you think through what in the world does this look like where I am in my life right now? That's what we're here to do is equip you, the saints, for the work of this ministry. And we long for you to be able to know this. And I know that it's hard, and I know that it's not easy, and I know that it's heavy. I do. And we want to serve you as part of that this morning after the service is over in this back corner. For those elders that are in here, we will be located in deacons as well. We'll be located in this back corner. We want to pray with you. If you, want to, if you and the first thing we ought to do is pray about it before we go giving you our, um, our advice and what we think you ought to be doing in the kingdom and what we think you ought to be doing in terms of the will of God. So if you are wrestling this morning with anything, 
and we can serve you. Let's be a church that prays. So we'll be located in that back corner. Actually, I probably won't make it back that far. I'll be up this way. So if you, if you need us, please, by all means, access us. So I'm going to close in prayer. We have one more song, and then we'll do the benediction. But know this. I know that what I said was heavy, but know this. I love you, and I'm struggling with you. And we want to do this as a people. Don't get lost. Don't, don't let the devil pull you away because he's whispering low in your ear. Let us see the glory of God coming in full. Amen? Father, thank you <coughs> that you would display your glory <coughs> in earthen vessels, that you would even give us the opportunity to pray this prayer. What an incredible prayer. What an incredible weighty thing. But yet we know, as Paul tells us, the Spirit also groans on our behalf and that we have the power of the Spirit to accomplish the things that you have predetermined and set for us. Let our theology help to Keep us fast. Hold us fast. It's not that your sovereignty keeps us from acting. It's, it's actually your sovereignty that allows us to act in freedom. Because we know that you are large enough, big enough to make happen what you desire and what you will. And you will lead in God. Let us not be a people who are in fear because you are not the God of fear. Let us be a people who long to step into the darkness and proclaim your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name. Amen.